if you've got a Bible, and you should have a Bible, you're going to need a Bible. We are nowhere. If we want to hear the voice of the, the Lord speak clearly to us, we need our Bibles, and we need to have them open. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 18. While you're doing that, let me just say something by way of uh, introduction. I, um, I, got a, I got an Uber into uh, the city um, yesterday, into the harbor, and I was talking to a lovely lady, lady Uber driver, and she was asking me, Which, where do you come from? I'm like, oh, I'm coming from Scotland. She goes, wow, Scotland, that must be like amazing. It's not like my city. My city's really a mess. It's in trouble. She was a, a 63-year-old lady. She said she'd lived here all her life, and um, she said she was uh, sad about uh, some parts of, of the city. And I said, listen, Scotland has lots of troubles. Scotland isn't unlike uh, Baltimore. Um, we have high crime, high addiction rates, high homelessness rates, um, and we have uh, many people who wouldn't be caught dead inside a church building. And she was very, very surprised at that. And I said, listen, the problem is even worse. That's not even the biggest of our problems. The biggest problem we've got right now is spiritual. And uh, not only are people in my country confused about who Jesus is, but that confusion is compounded by so-called church leaders making uh, ridiculous statements teaching absolute nonsense. My country, uh, and particularly poor communities, particularly communities of low income uh, and uh, high unemployment, we seem to uh, attract all sorts of fruitcakes, fruit loops, nut jobs, spiritual balm cakes, we call them, balm cakes. And uh, what happens is these so-called leaders, they get wheeled out on television when something happens in our communities, and they're asked about the gospel, they're asked about the living hope, and they fluff it. Let me, let, let me read you a quote from one, one of Scotland's leading Christians. This is what he says about Jesus. Jesus was crushed like a rag doll in the wheels of history. He was a great man, Jesus but he died in confusion and despair. What about that for a statement from Scotland's foremost spiritual leader? What a mess. What an absolute mess. And as I've been driven around Baltimore, and I've seen the old uh, church buildings, and I've seen, you know, the places where the rich folk live, and their nice houses, and the places where the poor folk live, and I've seen the guys shouting out on the streets, and you know, the little palms given out last week for the cars, and the smell of fish on Friday, and uh, the boys running the street corners, you know, Scotland and Baltimore aren't that different, are they? You see, you might think the biggest problem in my city, and this lady thought, she said, the biggest problem in the city right now is drugs, it's crime. It's the fact that people have and people don't have. I said, now that the biggest problem in your city right now is that people do not understand the real Jesus Christ. There is so much confusion on our streets about Jesus. Who is Jesus 
really? What did Jesus come to do? What does the Bible tell us? You know, one of the, the great things about the Bible is that it's... There's my man at the back. How are you doing, brother? Right. One of the great things about the Bible is that it operates almost like our own personal time machine. And what I mean by that is we can go back to almost any point in history and in, in, in the life of Jesus, and we get a front row seat to what actually happened. You see that? We don't have to listen to idiots wheeled out in dresses claiming to be Christian leaders telling us about what Jesus is and isn't. We've got Bibles. And today we're going to go back in our time machine to John chapter 18. And we're going to look at Jesus' last few hours on earth. Was he really frightened, Jesus, as he went to the cross? Was Jesus really out of control and in despair? And John 18 and these first 11 verses are going to help us. So let's read God's words together. And this is the word of God. There is no other. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So I don't have any uh, three fancy headings. I don't have any sort of technical PowerPoint presentations. I just want us, as a group of people this morning with open Bibles, to take a cheeky little walk through this text. Let's, let's really see. Let's really see what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. And let's just jump in. The first thing I want us to notice in this text is that Jesus was not caught out by the authorities. What I mean by this is Jesus didn't go on the run while the authorities sort of uh, conducted a, a massive manhunt. And you see it again. Look closely, verses 1 and 2. Look, look closely at verse 2. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. How did, you, how did Judas know the place? Well, John tells us, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So John wants us to know something from the off. As we get into the final hours of Jesus' life, as we get here into the garden, Jesus is not in hiding. Jesus actually is in his regular hangout joint with his regular crew. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a cheeky little phrase, two words. 
in the Gospel of John. And, and, and if you ever want to do a quick read through the Gospel of John and check out the phrase, the hour or his hour. That's a very, very, very important key to the book of John. Time after time in John's Gospel, we read of Jesus telling, telling his followers that his hour, in other words, the time of his death and his subsequent resurrection, his hour had not yet come. He says it to his mother way back in chapter 2 and verse 4. He tells it to the Jewish leaders trying to catch him out in chapter 7. In fact, the religious rulers uh, try and uh, arrest Jesus. But John tells us in chapter 7 verse 30, his hour had not yet come. He repeats the phrase when they try and uh, arrest him again in chapter 8. And as we enter into the second half of John's gospel, we know now Jesus knows that his hour is upon him. So listen to chapter 17, verse 1. Or you can turn there, but you can listen as well. This is Jesus' prayer. Father, listen to the language, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. You see that? So now as we enter into chapter 18, we see that Jesus is fully aware that the hour of his death is almost upon him. And so what does he, Jesus do in that hour? What does Jesus do in his darkest hour? Does he find a secluded spot to get away from it all? Does he try and hide out in some caves? Does he lock himself away in a safe house in the city? No, John tells us. He goes to the place where he and his disciples always met. Now, Jesus was a smart dude, by the way. Don't you forget that. Jesus, at any point, could have avoided the authorities. After all, they'd failed to pin him down to this point. Now, in my previous life, um, I used to spend, I spent considerable time, uh, three or four years, on the run from the police. In fact, I was very good, because I was small, I could hide in little places, but also, because I was smart. Let me give you a piece of advice, should you happen ever to find yourself on the run from the police. Okay, here it comes. Don't go to your mama's house. Don't go to mama's. Don't go to your best friend's house. Don't go to the place where you always hang out with your pals. Because that's the first place the authorities go, right? That's the first door the police come kicking through, right? You go into hiding. You want to stay ahead of the law. But not Jesus here. Do you understand? You're probably wondering, why are you making a big point of this? It will make sense as we go on. But John, God is making a point to us through John, who is telling us, Jesus goes where he always went in his darkest hour. And this is important. Why is it important? Because when Judas arrives on the scene, when Judas steps in to do the dirty deed, Jesus is not caught out. Listen to John 10. He says this for, for uh, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Listen. Because I lay down my life 
that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. In other words, what Jesus is about to do from chapter 18 onwards, he's about to do willingly. He's about to do in the full knowledge of what is to come. There's no confusion. There's no surprise. Jesus is not caught, trapped in the corner like a dog, looking for a way out, looking for a hole in the, in the bushes. And the early church was clear on this. One of the first sermons ever preached, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Listen to Peter. He's, he's preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, listen, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Everything that's about to happen now is done with God's set foreknowledge and purpose. Again, John 6, verse 70, Jesus saying, speaking to the disciples, he says to them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So here we have, twelve chapters later, Judas. And he turns bang on time. In verse 3. Notice how they come to Jesus in verse 3. Judas procured a band of soldiers, some officers from the chief priests, the Pharisees. They go there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is a mob, okay? This is a snatch and grab job. At night, in a quiet place, away from the crowds of Jerusalem because the people loved him. They loved him. And so, if you've never read a Bible before, if you read through John's Gospel and you just suddenly, and, and, and John's Gospel starts, stops at chapter 18 and verse 3 and just ends, you think, oh my goodness, it's all on top for Jesus. Jesus is finished. They've arrived. He's on his own. He's got a few pals with him, but they're not much good, right? These boys are rammed to the teeth. There's loads of them. What's going to happen now? It looks bad. It looks like he's about to be swept away by the authorities and forces completely outside of his control. But you know the beauty of the Bible and John chapter 18? It doesn't end in verse 3, does it? Because these boys turn up and it doesn't quite go their way, does it? Look at verse 4. Jesus, listen to the language, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, What's up, fellas? Who are you looking for? Does Jesus sound freaked out to you? Does Jesus sound like he's cowering in the corner, swaying? No. Jesus knew who they were looking for. Look what he says. Who do you look for? He said, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to these words. Jesus said to them, I am he. You know that, you know that phrase literally translates to two words. I am. Yeah. 
he says. Now, you need to go back to Exodus 3 and chapter 14 to hear that kind of language. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am. I am has sent me to you. So this is the holy name unspeakable to the Jews. You can speak out the holy name of God in public. And yet here Jesus in the garden takes upon himself that unspeakable name. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Why? John 8 verse 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. So here is Jesus in the garden deliberately taking upon himself the unspeakable, holy, unutterable name of God himself. This is Jesus in the garden proclaiming, claiming for himself what no other religious leader in the world dare ever do or say. He claims what no other religious leader has ever claimed. Listen to me, all the other prophets and leaders in the world, they may claim to know the truth, they may claim to know how to get to the truth. But Jesus says, I am the truth. Take that to the bank. I am the truth. In fact, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Says Jesus, there is no other. Jesus is not a guru. Jesus did not come to show us how to find God. Jesus says, I am God, and I've come to find you. All faiths do not lead to God. All religious leaders are not the same. Jesus stands head and shoulders above all in the claim that he makes here in this garden. You see, we can't, we've got to love Jesus or we've got to hate him. We can't respect him. You can't respect the teachings of Jesus. If you respect the teachings of Jesus, you have no clue what he is claiming here in this text. Jesus doesn't give us the option to go home and feel all nice about him. Oh, he's a cuddly guy. Walked around, he wore funny clothes, said a few nice things, gave up stuff to the poor. Jesus says, I am God. Now, look what happened to the guards in verse 6. This is a funny little verse, isn't it? When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I've, I, I, I've read lots of commentaries on this. And... It only reinforces my aim that most commentaries are stupid. <laughs> my, uh, and so uh, one guy said, oh, what happened was the first sort of guy tripped into the guy and then somebody fell over his shoelace and he fell over and they were all packed together and oh, it was, it was hilarious. No, my friends. Look, I grew up in Ireland. I'm an Irishman. Don't call me English. I, I'm Irish. And I grew up as a child in the streets of Belfast in the 70s. I don't know how much Americans know about Belfast in the 70s. That was at the height of what was called the IRA. 
You heard that IRA here? Irish Republican Army, bombings, bullets, British soldiers walked our streets, armed. Lots of bombs, lots of murders, hundreds of men, women, and children, thousands were murdered. I was brought up in the middle of that. Uh, man, there was, you know, I remember as a kid and British soldiers walked past, they weren't smiling at you, they weren't giving you sweets. It's not all this, you know, this sort of stuff soldiers have to do today because all the cameras are on them. They were brutal men. They were hard men. They would shoot you. Doesn't matter if you were a child or an adult, you would be shot. These guys, it was a brutal, it was a war zone. You had to watch your back. Israel was worse than a tour of Ireland back then for the Romans. These guys hadn't come to play. They were hard, well-equipped, well-trained warriors. And in two words that Jesus utters, they're all on the backsides. What's going on? Let me tell you what I think is going on. Here's what I think is going on. I think that just for a brief second, a millisecond in time, they get a glimpse as Jesus reveals something of his deity to them, that he get a glimpse of his majesty. Or they get a glimpse of the full, awesome power of Jesus. And they are gone. I feel sorry. I read this story, I feel sorry for these dudes. I mean, the religious leaders, they've screwed them, right? He's just going to come and arrest this dude. He's a bit of a pain. He's teaching some stuff. We don't like it. Let's, it'll be an easy job. Let's go. They hadn't come for an ordinary man. They'd come for God in the flesh. And just being near him, just being near him, as he revealed a little of his glory to them, caused them to fall back. You don't believe me? Listen to Ezekiel speak. He sees God in a vision, Ezekiel 1 verse 28, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of one speaking. Look how Isaiah reacts. He comes into the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. He says, woe to me. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King." the Lord Almighty. In Luke chapter 5, Peter falls at Jesus' feet when he realizes just who he is with. Here's the point. Nobody stands in the presence of God. Nobody stands on holy ground. This is John making a point about Jesus, making a point. By a word from his lips, a troop fall to the ground. This sounds like Jesus is out of control to you at this point. Who's the one lying down here? There is so much holy, godly power in this text. I haven't got a clue how to speak it to you. Now, let me try and illustrate for you. I once went white water rafting. Anyone been white water rafting? And apparently the biggest rapids in the world are grade six, right? Trust me, I've, I've whitewater rafted them. So, I went to uh, 
I did it in Africa of all places. The Nile. Do you know there's grade six rapids on the Nile? Anyway, in case you're planning your next holiday, there you go. So, now, the stupid thing about me going white water rafting down the Nile is this. I cannot swim. <laughs> but I figured, it'll be fun, right? I mean, a few little waves. Anyway, I got on this raft. Ten of us, ten adults got on this raft, and uh, the guy's going, well, you just, you just do this. When I say you do this, I'm like, it can't be so hard. We'll do this and this. We came around this bend, and these two, they call it the bone crusher or something. <sighs> these two waves just hit us, and it was frightening. They, 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 they picked up the raft, ten adults, flipped it upside down. I got sucked under the water, and I was spat out maybe a hundred yards downstream. But in seconds, right? Bang, 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 bang. I'm like, power, like I never felt it in my life. And that's a couple of pesky waves on a river. There is power here. There is power, and God is not to be played with, not to be mocked. Those of us who think we'll sort of nod and wink our way into heaven are in for a shock. Jesus is in full control here. This is a holy moment. God speaks, and for the briefest moment, they see his glory and majesty and might and power. Jesus of Nazareth was God come down, and this mob arriving like sneak thieves in the dead of night better know who they're dealing with. And what's fascinating to me is they come with overwhelming force on the ground. Two words. He shows them where the true power lay. So let me encourage you this morning, church. Jesus is king. Amen? Amen. Come on. Amen. Amen. Jesus is king, people. You remember that. John's vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last, I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. There is a time coming for all of us when we will meet with Jesus face to face. And let me tell you something, friend or foe, you're going to bow the knee. Friend or foe, you're going down in the face of his glory. We won't be friends, we won't be best pals, holy wrath or holy love will sweep us off our feet. Who we are, what we've done, irrelevant. How good we are or how good we've been or how bad we've been, irrelevant. We'll be on our face in the presence of Almighty God. We will stumble and groan under the weight of His majesty. Our God is a burning fire, holiness supreme. There'll be no negotiation with the Lord on judgment day. And what's really amazing in this text is this. In the face of this mob, armed to the teeth with just two words, we see Jesus in complete control. In fact, not only is Jesus in control, look at verse 8. Jesus is making the demands. You see that? Jesus answered, I told you I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. I mean, he's not exactly cowering there, is he? And then verse 9 points us back to his prayer. 
of John 6, verse 39, when he prays, I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. So here is Jesus in the face of a well-armed, well-trained mob. And he's John saying, Jesus is in charge. Yes, I'll go with you, fellas. No worries. But here's the crack. You're not taking any of my people. You're not harming any of my people. In John 17, verse 12, Jesus prayed about the disciples to the Father. He said, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So that scripture would be fulfilled. Here's a word for us. Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus always keeps his promises. Here he is in his darkest hour protecting those who are his. I mean, the gospel is all over, verses 8 and 9. You think about it this way. The calm, eternal, almighty king standing in the breach for his loyal followers. Protecting them from harm. Protecting them from the evil one. Jesus stands for us still. When death comes, when judgment comes, Jesus will step forward and stand up and speak out in our place if we have put our faith and trust in him alone. And then right at the end of this text, here comes the juicy bit. Here comes the the best bit for me. Because we get Peter What an absolute idiot that man was. And he is an encouragement for idiots like me everywhere. So, uh, in Scotland we have two cities that sort of rival each other. Edinburgh uh, 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 and Glasgow. Do you have a sort of rival, Baltimore? DC, Baltimore. Okay, you've got loads of rivals. Yeah, no one likes you, you don't care. Anyway, let's let's stick with my illustration because yours won't work. Because you've... You've got too many enemies. We'll just stick with two. So, Glaswell, so Edinburgh people are renowned for being a little bit uptight. Okay? Very uptight. I mean, you couldn't pass a $5 note through the crack of their butt cheeks, right? That's how tight they are. I mean, those guys are tight. Glasgow guys, they're nuts. They're scrappers, right? They'll fight you. Friendly, lovable, but they're scrappers. Edinburgh people. (laughs) Now, Peter, he's definitely from Glasgow. He's rough. He drinks Natty Bow. I mean, that boy loves a Natty Bow. Natty Bow there. Steak. Big fat steak in that hand. No knife and fork. Boom. That's Peter, right? He's a scrapper. Look at him here. Verse 10 and 11. He's just surveying the scene. You can feel him, right? Come on, Jesus. Let's just get stuck into them, right? Outnumbered, but no chance. Right? My homie, Jesus. Come on, let's go. You know what I love about Peter? All that time with Jesus. Can you imagine witnessing that scene? I am. I am. Boom. Walking with Jesus. Listening to Jesus. Learning from Jesus. 
and Peter still misses the point. Isn't that an encouragement for us? Because I'm a rat, but I'm a thick rat too, son. I, I need to be told a time and time again. To run out? Am I going too long? Is that why? Well, I'm going, baby. I'm going. I'm going because gold's coming now, okay? So... He misses the point, Peter. So what's the point? Well, verse 11 is the point. Look at verse 11, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. I mean, you can almost hear him, can't you, Jesus? (sighs) Come on now, Peter. Put that sword away, son. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I mean, Jesus, able to swat a troop of soldiers with two words from his mouth. More than that, Luke 26, 53 records at this event Jesus' words. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Here's Jesus offering freely to go with his men in exchange for the freedom of his disciples. Is Jesus sounding panic to you? Does Jesus sound confused? Does Jesus sound desperate? No. He said, he says, calm yourself, Peter. Get the sword away, son. I'm going to drink this cup that the Father has given me. What is this cup? Well, this cup, we know, is deeply connected to God's judgment against sinners. It represents justice. It represents the wrath of God. Here is Jesus saying, when I go to this cross, I will drink up all of God's wrath for you. I will take it all for you. I will stand in your place. Listen to the words of Psalm 75, verse 7. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Listen to Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Listen to Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. Make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed. Listen to the next bit. Because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hands and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. This is Jesus saying, Put the physical sword away, son. I've come with a spiritual sword. I've come to drink the full cup of God's wrath. Now, I don't know what it's like in America. This idea that Jesus on the cross takes upon himself the full wrath of God is not very popular. In my country, it's very controversial. The thought that God could allow his sinlessly perfect son to suffer such horrors at his own hand has been called cosmic child abuse. People get confused by it. Why would God do this to his son? How does that help us? How does that show us love? Let me try and illustrate this to you. Um, 
years ago now, more than a decade ago, 11, 12, 13, 14 years ago, uh, my wife and I, we went to Brazil to be missionaries. We worked with street gangs, and we worked up in the mouth of the Amazon jungle. And uh, both our children were young. When we went there, uh, our youngest was six months, our oldest was 20 months. Because we thought it would be easy, you know, raise two children, no parental help in a jungle, obviously, you know. I told you I wasn't smart. Anyway, a couple of years in, uh, my youngest, Lydia, she's about two, two and a half, she got, she got sick. And she got really sick, really quick. She lost half her body weight in 48 hours. And it was brutal. When you get sick in Brazil, there's no playing. And so we took her to this hospital. We rushed her to the hospital. Uh, the hospital was horrific. Five people died in the waiting room while we waited. It was brutal. So I don't know how you think about your healthcare, but trust me, Brazilian healthcare is not the best. Anyway, we got my little girl into a room. I'm, I'm sweating. I'm panicking. I, I, I'm freaking out. The, 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 the poor baby in the cot next to us died. While we were there, there was uh, feces on the floor. There was blood up the walls. The place was full of mold. It was the most brutal, horrible thing. My little baby, she could barely croak. That, that. She could, couldn't eat. She couldn't drink. This doctor or someone medical came in, and he starts jabbing her with a needle, and he's trying to find a, a vein to get some fluid into it. He said, if we don't get fluid into your child, she's, she's dead in the next 12 hours. But this guy couldn't find a vein. She's so dehydrated, and he's just poking, and she's crying and screaming. There's blood everywhere, and I'm getting more and more angry. I'm thinking, you know, if you stick her one more time, I'm going to stick that thing in your eye. The guy was, okay. And then a nurse came in and said, listen, Mr. McConnell, the only thing we can do now, and she pulled out this huge needle, we're going to have to stick this through the sole of her foot. There's nothing we can do. It's going to be horrific. If we don't get this into her, she's dead. And I'm looking at this thing, and I'm thinking, that looks brutal. And my little girl's lying there, croaking, and the nurse said, listen, you're going to have to lie on your child. Lie on her. Hold her down, because this is going to be bad. And so I put my body weight on little lid, and she's looking in my, little f in my face. I'm looking at her little face, and then this woman just goes, bang. And my girl screamed in my face. She's going, Daddy, why are you letting them hurt me? And I'm like, oh, I didn't know what to say. If you'd have walked into that room, the minute, the second, you saw me lying forcibly holding my child on a bed while a nurse stabs her in the foot with a six-inch needle, you could have been forgiven for thinking, you're abusing that child. But here's the, here's the rub, people. She didn't know it. The stranger wouldn't have known it, but I knew the cure looked bad. But without the cure, the end result was worse. You understand me? It was death. You'd be thinking, why is he letting his child be abused? That looks cruel. That looks unloving. But I did what I did because I love my child. I did what I did because I saw the bigger picture that she could not see or comprehend. So the question is not how could God do that to his son, but why would he do that for us? Jesus, he did it for us. Jesus took the full wrath of God 
for us. You see, people, that's the good news. That's the gospel. He dies in agony, taking upon the full wrath of God for us. And we learned on Friday, we looked at the last things of the cross, that Sunday's coming and Sunday's here. And Jesus rose again. Amen? Jesus is alive. Jesus took the full punishment, and in his resurrection, we see that God has vindicated him. That means that God has accepted that sacrifice. That's why, as Christians, when we think about the wrath of God, we shouldn't find it distasteful. We shouldn't turn our nose up at it. We should be encouraged to give up everything we have. Sell everything you have and help the poor. That's why you should be praying for those people at work who've shown no interest in Jesus whatsoever. That's why we should serve the Lord with all our might in whatever capacity, job or ministry he has called us to. That's why we put up with the snickers and the mocking of family and friends who wonder if we don't take it all just a little bit too seriously. That's why we do this. We do it because of Jesus. The, 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 the cup is the symbol of God's righteous anger. Jesus knew at that moment in the garden what nobody else did, and that was this. Sin had to be paid for. It still has to be paid for. God is angry with sin, and he's angry at sinners. They cannot be in his presence. He will not allow it. And so sin and death had to be defeated. Jesus knew it. Peter, God bless him, thought a sword would sort it all out. He didn't understand that Jesus needed to suffer and die to rescue not only Peter's damned soul, but the damned souls of all his people. I mean, we have no understanding, do we, of what the full wrath of God unleashed on the world is going to look like. Did you remember the scenes? Was it on the news here, the, the devastation of the huge tsunamis a few years ago? Did you see that on the t TV? Whole villages, cities wiped out. Carnage. Imagine the full force of God's wrath intensified around the world. Imagine that being poured out on Jesus. In John 18, Jesus knew that a storm was coming. But why so severe? Well, imagine you're eating lunch today with a loved one and they, and, and they collapse with a heart attack. And they rush to the ER. Their heart stopped. The doctors are trying all measures and they say to you, listen, there's nothing, only thing left to us now is extreme measures. Do we have your permission to crack open their chest and perform open heart surgery? What do you say? Well, unless a relative you don't like. I'm saying, you got my permission, baby. You do whatever you need to do to save my loved one's life. You do everything within your power. Extreme measures were needed to save the countless souls of men, women, and children through the ages. And here's the bottom line. You think about that when you have your potluck lunch, your little drink later. Jesus Christ drank the cup so we don't have to. 
we don't even have to take a sip. You think about that. The full, terrible wrath. That's why he prays in the garden, Father, if you're you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. He knew how hard it was going to be. He knew every sin, a drop poured into this cup, and he drank it all. Now, uh, when my girls were little, we'd go on road trips, and I used to have this drink drink called Pepsi Max, and the girls loved Pepsi Max. Yeah, I'm a bad parent, I know. And uh, they'd say, hey, Daddy, can I have some of your Pepsi Max? And I'd be like, okay, but don't drink it all. A quick swig, and I want it back, okay? Yeah, 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 okay. So five minutes later, my bottle would get passed to the front of the car. And you know the drill, right? If you've got kids, right? Is that, is that a toy in there? How did this biscuit get in there? It's a bit of biscuit. Oh, come on. A big glob of spittle going all the way. You been there? Oh, right? The Bible says Jesus drank it down to the dregs. The scum, the spittle and all. For us. You take that to the bank. Now, Jesus sweats blood in the face of this truth. He's faced what many of us will never face. But let me ask you this question. If the perfect, sinless Son of God sweated blood, knowing the agony of God's wrath to come, then what hope do you think there is for those of us who think we're going to face God on our own merit? Oh, my friends, do not be confused. We don't like to think of God's wrath in our generation. We like to think of his kindness, his patience. Some people think, well, God was a bit grumpy in the Old Testament, but he sort of cheers up in the New Testament. But you know, John... 3.36 tells us this. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Amen. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Do you know why? For God's wrath remains on them. Here's my point. God takes our sin seriously. And if you think he doesn't, then you have not understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've not understood what Jesus suffered. Now, of course, many of us suffer. We suffer pain, we suffer illness, we suffer anguish, but it's only physical and it's only temporary. If we come to risen King Jesus and put our faith and trust in him, the suffering of our souls will end today and for eternity. Why do you think Christians can sing and pray in the midst of terrible suffering? Because we know that he drank the cup so that we don't have to. Let me, let me remind you of the idiot in the beginning of his quote. Jesus was crushed like a ragdoll in the wheels of history. A man who died in confusion and despair. That's a lie. That there is some fake news. You see what I'm saying? Here's the truth, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. What does that mean? What does that mean? Let me tell you what that means. That means there is forgiveness for that secret abortion. 
That means there's forgiveness for that sexual abuse. That means there's forgiveness for that messy divorce. That means there's forgiveness for not seeing your children enough because work took over your life. That means there's forgiveness for missing the opportunity to share Christ at work or at school. It means the strength to carry on when you're going through life's crises. It means hope in your soul when you feel nobody understands what I am going through. That's what it means. It is good news. Jesus is alive. Amen? And let me tell you something. It's the only good news. And you can sit here this morning and you can be in wonder and praise and awe of it. Or you can sit here this morning and think, what the heck is that little white boy saying? (laughs) You can sit here in this meeting and pretend, my life's okay. I'm okay. I mean, I've got it under control. This year's going to be my year. I'm going to turn the corner. It's going to be different this time. This relationship is going to be better than the last relationship. This job, better than the last job. This church, better than my last church. Or you can just stop lying to yourself. There is no magical cure for our problems around the corner. We'll never quite get our lives right. We'll never quite make it the way we wanted to make it. We can stop right now and get to know The Jesus Christ who took the full cup of God's wrath. He's the reason we're going to sing now. And we're going to sing and we're going to blow the house out, right? Because Jesus has defeated the only thing that hangs over us. Death and judgment. It's done and dusted. All we wait for now is rest. Man, I can't wait for some rest, but right now... We've got business to do. So let me ask you the question as we end. Why are you here today? What are you looking for? I mean, you, I, I've, heard the, I've heard the stories about Baltimore. You, you buy a new dress or a new suit or maybe a new pair of undercrackers, whatever is your thing. You know, you make a special effort for Jesus on Easter. What is it you're looking for? If it's Jesus then know that he's the great I am. He is God, there is no other. He went to the cross willingly to die for sinners, to drink the cup of God's wrath, to pay the full price for sin. And even though you live, and you and I live in sin now, he's willing to accept us into his family if we will turn from our willful rebellion and put our faith and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. We can stand with Jesus today, or we can stand with Judas And here's a word for the church, and I'm leaving with this. I've driven around your city. I've seen the crack. I've seen the the problems. It may look to you, brothers and sisters, like the enemies of God have overwhelming force on the ground in Baltimore today. But let me guarantee you there is a bigger eternal picture that we don't even comprehend. Take your stand with Jesus Christ. He'll never let you down. Amen? Amen. Amen. Peace.